referencing these passages. Um, by the way, I hope you're here this morning because you want to hear from God. And I'm, I'm here to tell you and to declare to you once again that this is the living Word of God. It is truth. It is without error. It has the ability today, supernaturally, to reach into our lives and change us. My words will not change you. And so I pray, my prayer, your prayer should be that you don't hear from me, that you hear from God this morning. And that's my desire. That's our heart, is that you've come here to hear from God. And my prayer is that He would speak to you, that He would make Himself known to you again today, that you would understand Him on a more deeper and personal, intimate level, and and that you would be changed as a result of being in His Word and spending time with Him. I believe that will happen with all my heart today as we submit ourselves to God's Word and to the Holy Spirit. And with this topic of faith being tested, um, I think it's never more applicable to realize that our faith is tested than, and, and that there's a reason for it than in the times that we're now living. Remember, guys, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon, and because Jesus is coming soon, it should affect the way that we live. And because Jesus is coming soon, I believe that our faith has been and will continue to be tested in ways that it never has before. And you might be sitting there and you might be like grasping and cringing when you think about that. But what we have to remember is is that the, the testing, when God tests our faith, it's always with the heart of a father who loves us. Who, who, who cares for us, who wants to do good in us and do good through us, even though the testing of our faith can come with difficult challenges and trials and maybe even some tribulation into our lives. And as we consider this last account recorded for us in Mark chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 8, I want to read to you to kind of set a precedence or set a stage for what we're going to talk about. I want to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. It says this, It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, why receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's what we're looking forward to. But there's a time in between the, 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 the receiving of our salvation of our souls, receiving the end of our faith, where our faith that comes from the, the truths that we hear ultimately being tested and then applied in our lives on a daily basis. And, and that's what we're looking at. And as I read this passage where Peter talks about our faith, um, and, and I read this passage, excuse me, because where Peter talks about our faith, um, we, and, and we line that up and we correlate that with what we've been studying um, um, leading up to this last account in Mark chapter 4, where we read about the parables that Jesus was speaking to the crowds of people, to his disciples, what we see is that we're being, we're being taught spiritual truths, right? We, we mentioned that a, a parable is 
um, an earthly example that is being used to reveal a spiritual truth. And so ultimately today, as we've read and studied in the weeks leading up to this, these parables and also the teachings of Christ up to this point, we're hearing and receiving spiritual truths. And as a result of that, there's a response. We're called to share and to obey these truths that are revealed in God's Word, which are foundational to our faith. They are the reasons for why we believe what we believe and ultimately the reasons for why we live our lives in the way that we live our lives. And in light of these parables that Jesus told his disciples, that he told them that these spiritual truths were being revealed to them simply because they had a willingness, right? A willingness to receive. And that's and if you're here this morning, just you simply being here is a sign that you're willing to receive what God has to speak to you today. And 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 and, and in the same manner, in, in, a, in a contrasting way, we know that the parables were also um, used to conceal spiritual truths to those who did not have a willingness to receive them and then to do something with this. In light of this, what we see is that Jesus called his disciples. Look in Mark chapter 4, verse 24. He, he brings them to this point where he says, he says, take heed to how you hear. In other words, he's calling us to action in light of what we hear, to how they received the spiritual truths that were being revealed to them. In other words, as they came to understand, as truths were being made known to them in regards to what Jesus was teaching them, they in turn needed to live in accordance to the foundational truths that were being revealed to them. Take heed to how you hear. Because with knowledge and understanding, guys, hear this. With the knowledge and the understanding of the truth comes two things. Responsibility and accountability. When God makes a truth known to you, a way of living, His will known to you, guarantee you on the day of judgment, even though we're secure in Christ, all believers will be judged and God's going to say, what did you do with what I made known to you? And what did you do with what I gave to you? We're going to give an account. There's a responsibility to do something with it in this life. This life that He saved us to. There's accountability. And so we must take care. We must take heed to how we hear. Especially when we understand that Jesus' call to heed, right? To heed how we hear was followed, look in verse 25, with a promise. A promise to, to be given more spiritual understanding if we do take heed, and a warning of loss if we do not, that which will be given, has been given, will be taken away. But as we read on in the final verses of chapter 4 and also into Luke chapter 8, what it becomes clear is that the disciples did not yet realize things that we might also not realize but need to take hold of this morning is that faith, that faith must, be, must be tested before it can be trusted. And God's okay with that. Our faith must be tested before we can trust it. God wants to prove Himself faithful. God wants to prove His promises faithful. He wants to prove to us that these things that are in here are right and good and true and noble and praiseworthy. And it is worth building our lives upon. He says, go ahead and Test me on this as he takes us through certain things. Faith must be tested before it can be trusted. In other words, let me put it this way. It's one thing to learn a spiritual truth or even to learn uh, about God in, in, as the person of God, who he is, and, and as a loving, kind, 
you know, merciful, forgiving, just God. It's one thing to know spiritual truths and to learn spiritual truths and, 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 and to know about God than it is to take that knowledge and put it into practice. It's one thing to know it and one thing to put it into practice in regards to the everyday experiences of life. It's a whole other thing. And the point is, truths that are only in our head are, 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 are simply academic. And they will never get into our hearts unless we put them into practice by an act of our will as we're put into situations that cause us to exercise the faith that is foundational to the truths that have been given to us. And this is so important for us to realize. Listen, because according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, it says this, doing the will of God from the heart, quote-unquote, is what God wants from, the, from those of us who are His children. He doesn't want us just to be acting and behaving. He, you know, he does care about the behavior, but, but firstly, like with the shepherding the child's heart that we'll be talking about, God's more concerned about our heart being in line with Him and in submission to Him, and then the result of that is a lifestyle that glorifies Christ. Not just hypocrisy, where we're, where we're all, we just look good on the outside and on the inside, like Christ said about the Pharisees, we're full of dead man bones. There's no life. There's no heart change. There's no love for God or for the things of God. Doing the will of God from the heart. And, and, and this is why Proverbs chapter 4, speaking about the heart, the inner man, the inner part of us, the emotions, the, the thoughts, all of it. It says, above, above all else, Proverbs 4, verse 23 Guard your heart, for the heart is the wellspring of life. From the heart is the wellspring of life. So in the remaining verses of Mark chapter 4, here in the text, we read about this really, it's a test of faith. The disciples have been given some spiritual truths. They were willing, they were wanting to know, and, and Christ discerned them, Jesus discerned them, and, and, and educated them, and informed them of these spiritual truths. And, and now there's this test of faith, and in this we see a challenge, an opportunity to live by faith. And for us today, it's an example. It's a very practical, reasonable example of how the tests and challenges of faith, of faith that we face today are simply opportunities to implant God's truths deep into our hearts so that we might do His will from our heart. In the same account, as recorded at the end of Mark chapter 4, you can look over to Luke chapter 8 now, as recorded in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And in Luke's gospel, it continues with the additional accounts that are also recorded in Mark chapter 5. And these accounts, these additional accounts, are other tests of faith. Lessons of faith in verses 26 through 56 in Luke chapter 8 that are similar also. They correlate to our lives perfectly, guys. They're, they're similar tests and challenges that we all face in our daily lives that can be overcome by our faith, as we live by faith, as we walk by faith. And so this morning, as we consider the testing of our faith, I'd like for us to study through these accounts recorded in Luke chapter 8 as we also navigate our way through the end of Mark chapter 4 and into chapter 5. So um, I want to read and then we'll pray. I'm going to read the first, um, first verses here, Luke chapter 8, verses 22. 22 through 25, okay? Um, 
This was after Christ in the Gospel of Mark had told his disciples to take heed, right? They were on the sea, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, They had been traveling around, teaching in the wilderness and in places outside of the city. Um, Crowds of people were following Christ at this time. There were others who had, had intentionally sought to be adversarial at this point in his ministry, plotting against him. And it says in verse 22 that now it happened on a certain day, we know what day that is from Mark's account as we follow the timeline, that he got into the boat, Jesus, with his disciples, and he said to them, listen, this is important under I. And he said, let us, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep, and a windstorm came down. By the way, my wife likes to point out these Verses like this that might seem very obscure in the light of Jesus took naps and so should we. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, moving on. And so as Jesus was taking a nap, right, a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. Now, Um, The distance between here and where Jesus was going there at Capernaum um, to the Gadareans, um, if you go, it would be an east-west route, and uh, it's about five miles, just so you know. I've been over to Israel, I've seen it, Um, you can study maps, but the winds that come down, come down from the north, um, down that valley, um, the Jordan Valley, out of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon stands, I think it's like 10,000 feet, eight to 10,000 feet. It gets snow. It's got snow right now on it. And um, as the winds come down, it can bring up to eight-foot swells on the Sea of Galilee. And so this is kind of the idea. And these men, most of them, you know, a good portion of them have been fishermen, were familiar with this. They grew up at least around the, the Sea of Galilee, if not working on it. Um, there was a, the, their lives really were in jeopardy. Their boats were filling up. And in verse 24, it says, they, his disciples, came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, And they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, again, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we want to hear from you. Lord, I want to hear from you. Lord, I desire that those who have come here today Lord, that um, that they would know you in a more intimate and personal way. Lord, as we draw near to the end of all things here on this earth and prepare for your return, as we live expectantly, I pray, Lord, that you would grow our faith, that we would be assured of our faith in you and in the things that you've spoken to us. And Lord, we know from what we read here that faith must be tested. But when our faith is tested, Lord, we know that it can be trusted. We can trust you. You show yourself trustworthy and faithful in the things that you say and the truths that you speak stand true. They're a light. They're a firm foundation to us. And Father, uh, as you're preparing us for what lies ahead, Father, help us to receive with grace and with joy all that you have for us today. Lord, please do a work in us, that you may do a work through us. And Lord, that you may be glorified. Lord, that we may be 
um, ready and found faithful on that day when you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are, this first account. And in this first account, we can see, if we want to kind of summarize it, we can see that this testing of and challenge to faith, which, by the way, that, that simply describes what the testing of faith is. Uh, we know what it will produce, but the testing of faith is really a challenge to faith, a challenge to exercise our faith, to stand on our faith, to live according to what we believe. So that, and in this account, this testing of faith and, and challenge to faith, we see that it came as a result of this dangerous and life-threatening situation called COVID. No, just kidding. <laughs> and I half-jokingly say that because whether, wherever you stand on it in, is fine. I'm not trying to say one thing or another about it, but in the world today, we have these things that are popping up around us that uh, whether they are or whether they aren't, to some they are and to some they aren't, in, in reality or in perception, they can be a dangerous, life-threatening situation. I'm here to tell you, the Bible tells us that, there, that as the Lord's return nears, we're going to see more of these things arise. More life-threatening and dangerous situations. We hear about wars and rumors of wars. And, and we may not be directly in them. And at some point, I believe we will be subjected to these things if the Lord delays. But can you imagine being a Ukrainian person right now? The world that we live in has changed drastically, and the time that we've been given here is short. And, 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 and the fact of the matter is, is, is we all have faced dangerous and life-threatening situations. It doesn't happen all the time, but we do. And even though we'll probably never be in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, the fact of the matter is that dangerous and, 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 and life-threatening or threatening situations are something that we've all encountered and will encounter again. If you're not going through one right now, in the future, it'll happen. And, and when we're in a dangerous situation, it's always an opportunity to be tested by faith. And in doing so, challenged in the same manner, to walk by faith, right? And in this account, the thing to point out is that before Jesus had fallen in the sleep in the boat, before he had, he had laid down to take his nap, he, he had given his disciples a command in verse 22, which was also, if you look at it in light of the whole context of what's leading up to this and what will take place afterwards, it was really a promise, right? When he said to them in verse 22 that they were going to go to the other side of the lake. We are going to go to the other side of the lake. Get in the boat, we're going over. And, and this may sound silly and even almost facetious when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's, we can relate to it. He didn't say, hey guys, let us get in the boat and let us go to the middle of the sea and perish in the storm that's coming that you don't know about yet. And I say that because God has spoken truths and promises to us, and yet when the trials of life, when the storms of life come, we're quick to go, you brought us out here to kill us. It's human nature in some form or some facet. We go, God, you're letting me down. You're failing me. And we don't exercise faith. Think about the children of Israel as just an example for us. Right? They're in Egypt. They've been in Egyptian bondage and slavery for 400 years. God sends Moses, a deliverer, to deliver them out of the hand of the most powerful nation 
and ruler that had ever been at that time, Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And he does so with signs and wonders over and over and over again. And, and not only do they walk out, they're permitted to leave and they take wealth. As they leave, God made it so like, Here, here's our gold, take it with you. You know, and, and, and as Pharaoh chases after him, right, because Pharaoh changes his mind. Oh, I made a mistake. I'm going to bring him back. We know that God, through, through Moses, parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land, and, and then the waters of the sea close back on Pharaoh's army and destroys them. It's not just a few days later. They're in the wilderness. After all these wonderful things, God's saying he's got a place that he's going to take them to that they're struggling because the water's not easy to be found. And God provides, but the people come and they're complaining. It's like, God, you brought us out here to kill us. They literally say that. After all that God had done, yeah, does that make any sense? God's brought me this far to bring me to this place just so he could kill me because he's a maniacal God. I mean, but guys, we're in the midst of that. And when we're not exercising faith in our own lives, those same kind of thoughts in some form or some fashion come into our minds. But we have to remember what God has spoken to us, the promises that he's made known to us, the things that he's already done for us that Scripture says, if God has not already done this for you through his Son, Jesus Christ, will he not all the much more take care of whatever else is going through into your life? He's going to see us to the end. We're going to the other side. He promised his disciples that they would cross over to the other side. And these words of Jesus should have encouraged and strengthened the disciples during the storm. When the wind came and caused the waves to rise up and fill their boats with water. But here, it's not that they didn't have any faith. Jesus said, you have no, he didn't say you have no faith. He said, where is your faith? They had it. They just hadn't exercised it. And really, in a sense, their faith was small at this point. And through the testing of the faith and the call to exercise of faith, God was testing it so that, it could be, so that he and the things that, they, that he was speaking to him could be trusted. And their faith could grow. Their faith could grow. Consequently, the disciples were afraid, as I'm sure all of us would be, and at times we are in the storms that we're facing, in life-threatening and dangerous situations. But Jesus was not. He was not afraid as he continued to sleep. He continued to nap, even when the wind and the waves were raging all around them. In fact, they were so afraid that they believed. They believed they were going to die. We're perishing. And in verse 24, they were moved by fear. They woke Jesus up to tell them that they were perishing. And if you look back to Mark's account, I love it a little bit better because it's, they, they presented this knowledge in the form of a question. As they asked Jesus if, they even, if he even cared that they were perishing. And it wasn't even so much about just them in that moment. It wasn't like, don't you care that we're perishing? The, the we're in that context is all of them you're dying too here jesus you're in this boat don't you even care that we're perishing and you're here sleeping and i think it's interesting to point out that in this account that we see that jesus did not react to the storm and i'm glad for that jesus isn't moved by the storms that we face the storm doesn't move jesus he didn't react to the storm but he did respond to his disciples right he responded to his disciples, and in doing so, he stood up. He, he responds to us. The storms that we go through don't move Jesus. He's a rock. 
but He is moved by us. He loves us. And in doing so, He stood up, He rebuked the wind and the raging water, and what we know is they ceased. And the fact that the wind and the waves obeyed Jesus' command was a miraculous thing. It's an amazing thing. Um, and so much so, we see the disciples' response, and they're like, the fear that they once had for the storm had rightly been transitioned to this awe, marveling of who is this before us? It was a miraculous thing. However, the other thing that we need to take note of in this verse is that with the rebuke, with Jesus' rebuke, to stop, to, be, to, to cease, that there was this calm. And to me, this is a, a separately significant thing to take note of because in the storm, once the winds die down, once the water would have remained, the, once the wind died down, those waters would have remained rough for a long time. Those eight-foot swells, you know, by the sense of physics would have con- physics would have continued to to be a, 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 a uncomfortable and dangerous place to be, but not with the words of Jesus when he spoke them. It wasn't the case, as everything was instantly made calm and stayed that way by Jesus's command. Peace was felt. And then Jesus in verse 25 spoke to his disciples and he, he questioned them, he challenged them, right? Challenge them, where is your faith? In other words, have I not revealed myself to you? Have I not? Don't you understand who I am to some measure at this point? What about the truths that I've spoken to you that I've said, take heed to how you hear? Where is your faith? And by this, we see that this dangerous situation was clearly a testing of their faith. And it was a challenge for them to have have exercised their faith. And in light of this, we can see that the disciples' real problem wasn't the storm, was it? What was the real problem? It was unbelief. I mean, that's true in our own lives. The problems that we face really, truly aren't the external things. It's, it's, it's the unbelief that creeps in, that robs us of our joy, that robs us of our peace, that causes us to have fear and anxiety, and discouragement, and even despair. Their unbelief was more dangerous than the storm, and I would suggest that's true for us as followers of Christ today. And so Jesus' disciples, they at this point, they didn't pass the test of faith. I'm sure they grew as a result of it. And, and God's, God's tests are, are not pass-fail, they're pass-pass. God's continuing to grow us and love on us and teach us. And, and, and because they did not hold on to Jesus' word that they were going to the other side, they, they, in a sense, didn't pass this test. And I point it out because it shows us that, that faith is not an issue. Please hear this. Faith is not an issue of believing in spite of the circumstances. Faith is an issue of obeying in spite of the feelings that we have and the potential or perceived consequences that comes along with taking those steps and living by faith. And Jesus' disciples fell prey to this because they looked around and they saw what they see. They looked around, they saw the danger as the wind raged and as the, as the as their boat filled with water, and because they looked within themselves and saw fear, saw their fear, rather than looking up by faith and seeing God. It was, it was a focus issue. And the point is, faith and fear, I love this, and you need to keep this in mind, is that faith and fear cannot dwell together in the same heart. 
faith drives out fear. Because faith directs us to God, who is a loving God, who is a perfect God. And, and, and perfect love, it says in Scripture, drives out all fear. Faith cannot dwell together in the same heart, for fear will take you from the promises of God, and faith will take you to the promises of God. Fear will take you away from the promises of God, and faith will take you to the promises of God. There was once a woman who had said to D.L. Moody, he said, she said, I found a wonderful promise, and she quoted Psalm 56, verse 3, which says, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. But Moody, he responded, and he said, let me give you a better one. And he quoted Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. He said, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And guys, that's the, that's the place where we want to land as we go through these testings. None of us here, I'm sure of it, certainly not me. Maybe you, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. But I, I go through the trials and the testing of life when my faith is being tested. And, and very rarely am I, God's my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I'm more of the Psalm 56 verse 3. It's like, I'm afraid, Lord, I'll trust in you. And, and, it's a, and I point that out because it's, it's, it's a journey Faith that we exercise is a journey and where God takes us from this place and brings us to this spot where we can confidently declare, God is my salvation, I will trust, and I will not be afraid. But don't be discouraged or despondent upon yourself or even let the enemy condemn you when you're not like the storms of life come and the trials of life come and you're not this, this, this immovable rock in regards to faith where, where the emotions haven't had some place in your life. That's to be human. But the more that we walk with the Lord, the more that we know Him, the more that our faith is tested and proven to be trustworthy, the less time we spend over here and the quicker we move to this place where we go, it's it's no big deal, God's got it. Or it is a big deal, but God's got it. I'm okay, I'm gonna be okay. He's faithful and the things that He's told me is true. And ultimately, the problem the disciples faced in this situation is the same problem that we face today. Guys, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of understanding that gets us to these places where fear and anxiety may control us. The problem is is that we know God's Word, we know His commands, and we know His promises, but we don't believe, unbelief, or we don't obey them when, 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 when we face times of testing. Because when the time of testing comes, that's the opportunity to walk in obedience, to do what God has said to do in those moments, in those situations. And so I think it's safe to say that it's one thing to learn the truth, right? To have it up here in our head. But it's a whole other thing to live by the truth from our hearts. And the question that Jesus asked his disciples once he gave the command to calm the wind and the waves is the same question that, that, that facing, is facing us and does face us. Where, where is our faith? And then we need to ask that again of ourselves today, knowing that Jesus is coming soon, knowing that things can get difficult before that time where we will have our faith tested maybe in ways that we never had before. Where is our faith? Where is my faith? My faith is in Jesus Christ. My faith is in the unchanging Word of God. My faith is in the promises that He's spoken to me, which are yes and amen, Scripture says. My faith is not in myself. 
It is in he who is greater than me and than the things of this world. And we do, so do we put our trust in who God is and in the promises that he has for us? Or do we put our trust in ourselves or in our circumstances that we face? As we read on in verse 26, it says that they sailed, right, to the country of the Gadareans, which is opposite of Galilee. It's a five-mile boat ride. And when he stepped out of the land onto the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Plural, right? And he wore no clothes. And he, in, in, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice, said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him, to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion. And here's the reason why because many demons had entered him. And they begged him, these demons, that he would not command them to go down into the abyss. Now, a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. And in verse 33, Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the slope or down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Um, and, and when those who had fed them saw what had happened, they fled and they told it into the city and into the country. And then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus. And they found the man, number one, from whom the demons had been departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. That might not be the right response. Then they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadareans asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and they got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he, would, that he might be with him, but, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Man, many examples of faith here. Now in Matthew's account, also in Mark's account of this event, we're told that really there's two men here, two demon-possessed men that had met Jesus when he stepped out of the boat. And, And Luke mentions only one and this is due to the fact when you when you understand Jewish writing in the most there's there's uh, there's room here to to say it's only one because only one in all of the accounts that we read of this only one ever does the talking and so Luke is highlighting the conversation that the one has had not giving all the specific details but nevertheless as we see this both of these men were in bad shape I think it's safe to say they were naked They lived in the tombs amongst the the dead, rotting bodies that were there. They were violent and dangerous because, we're told here, they were controlled by a legion of demons, many demons. And at this time, a Roman legion, which would be the reference that we're talking about, it was a unit of soldiers that numbered anywhere from 5,400 people to 6,000. I don't know about you, but when I read about that as an actual event and the possibilities behind that, I think that even even still apply to what goes on spiritually today, that 
sends chills up and down my spine. Now, we don't know for sure if this is the exact number of demons, 5,000, 6,000, whatever it is, um, in regards to that. But we do know that when, when Jesus, in verse 30, when he asked for his name, tell me your name, right? He said it was legion, right? Because many had entered him. And when these demons were ultimately cast into the pigs, Mark's gospel, if you're there, Mark's gospel account tells us that the number of the pigs that were in the herd was 2,000. So at least 2,000 demons, if not more, going into the herd of these pigs and this, this herd of pigs. And as we begin to examine these verses, here's where faith comes into it in the discussion that we're talking about. It's, it's important to point out to you that demons have faith. Do you know that? And maybe you've never heard that before and you're like, this dude's weird, we need to leave. No, bear with me. So what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that demons have faith. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us this saying that by saying that even the demons believe in God and it says they tremble. That's their response. They believe in God, they have faith in God, and they tremble. However, what they don't have is a saving faith. They have a, a, a certain kind of faith, but they don't have a saving faith. And in this account of the demon-possessed man, we see that demons, according to verse 28, even believe that Jesus is who? The Messiah, the, the Son of the Most High God. They know Him. And, and they know that He has the power, the authority to speak commands over their being that they have to do what he says furthermore they according to verse 31 look they believe even in a future judgment they know there's a judgment to come the existence of this eternal place of torment called the abyss in this account to which jesus could send them with the power of his word and they also believe in prayer demons believe in prayer why do i say that because they prayed they begged Jesus to not send them into the abyss. And they asked him, verse 32, rather to be sent into the pigs instead. And Jesus granted their requests. And in, in light of this knowledge, as we look to see how this might relate to our own lives, in light of this knowledge about a demon's faith, we should examine our own faith. I'm not saying that we, we have a demonic faith, but maybe there are aspects of our life in regards to how we exercise our faith that is more of a, in lines of what the demons and how they believe and exercise their faith than that of a true saving faith that a believer is supposed to have. Here's what I mean. You see, the difference between a faith like the demon has, which is an intellectual faith, they believe the truth, they have an emotional faith, they tremble, and still not having a saving faith, is that a saving faith goes beyond the knowledge of the truth and beyond the motion that fills our heart. A saving faith directs our will. A saving faith directs our will and involves a changed life that can be seen and recognized by others around us. In other words, if I was to ask, you know, who here has put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins. I hope every one of you would raise your hand and say that Jesus is my Savior. But alongside that, there's a second question to be asked in light of this that we see here. The second question is, is 
He is Jesus your Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he the master, the king of your life? Do you live in submission to his will by your saving faith? And this is why James went on to illustrate the faith of the demons in James chapter 2 and then challenged this type of demonic faith in James chapter 2 as he wrote to the early church and he said, man, show me your faith without your works, which James is saying, go ahead, try. And he says this, I'll show you my faith by my works. Not that we're saved by works, but works are the, are, the, are the evidence of our faith. It's the evidence of a life that is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's possible to show your faith, it's impossible to show your faith without your works. You can speak it, but it doesn't mean you believe it. It doesn't mean you're submitted to it. It doesn't mean you're living by it. Meaning when we put our trust in Jesus, what we do in regards to lordship is we surrender our will to him and we make a decision to walk in the works that he has appointed for us no matter what the challenges are. We walk in accordance to the works that he's appointed for us. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in him. We've submitted our lives to him. We've given our lives to him. And he says, good, that's great. I have a plan for your life. And yet we can fight that as believers and go, um, maybe not in this area, or maybe not, can I do this over here? I really don't want to do that. And it's, a, it's, it's an issue of us not living in faith that's submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this type of saving faith, ultimately, that we're talking about is perfectly exampled for us at the end of this account by this man who had been delivered from demon possession. And I think there's great correlation to us for this because we also have been delivered. Maybe not from demon possession, but demon oppression and, and the sinful lifestyle that goes, goes around goes along with living in rebellion to God that we were all delivered from that was ultimately sending us to hell that we've been delivered from. And even though the, the other people in the community that we read about here were witnesses, according to verse 5, to the very things that Jesus had done, and, and witnesses, they'd seen the power that Jesus had to change this person's life. This crazy man, this naked, violent person running around, living in tombs, breaking chains, hurting himself, probably hurting others. They saw this. They saw the power that Jesus had to change a person's life. Yet they, according to verse 36, they still wanted nothing to do with him. And they asked him to leave. But in contrast, this man who examples this kind of lordship faith that we're talking about, he wanted to depart with Jesus. He said, oh, don't leave me here with these guys that don't want you. I don't think it was so much that as he was just attracted to the beauty of Jesus. And he said, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And yet Jesus said, no, there's something for you. I have a plan for your life. I'm calling you to exercise faith in me and submit to my plan and, think, and know that this is not only better for you and for those around you. And he said, go home. Go home and tell the others about the great things that God has done for you. 
And the point is this, is that being a Christian who walks by faith involves this, trusting in, relying upon, and clinging to, and living for Jesus. And in doing so, we receive a new life from Him. Do you hear that? In doing so, we receive a new life. Because we become a new creation, we get a new life in Him. A life that He's chosen for us. And, and, and we reveal the new life we have received to others around us by the way that we live our lives. In faith. And so, as we wrap this up in verse 40 with this last account, it says, while He was still speaking, excuse me, it says, so it was, verse 40, so it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed Him. For they were all waiting for him, and behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter. She was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as, she, as, as, as he went, the multitudes thronged him, so Jesus went with this man to his house there. And a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who has spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately the flow of blood was stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. Now, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden she came trembling and falling down before him and she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him explaining obviously how she had been sick and how ultimately how she had been healed it said immediately and he said to her daughter be of good cheer your faith has made you well go in peace and while he was still speaking someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying your daughter is dead Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe. He's calling this man to faith. And she will be made well. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father of the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But he put out all, put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, "Little girl, arise." And then her spirit returned, and she arose. And immediately he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, in this last account, in this section, thinking in how it relates to our lives in regards to faith, faith can be applied and needs to be applied when there's a physical affliction, right? in times of sickness, and whether it's a temporary thing or a chronic thing that you might be living with or dealing with, there's a perfect opportunity for the testing of faith with physical affliction and in a time of sickness. And it's a challenge as we're being tested in our faith in these ways. It's a challenge to walk and live by faith. And in this account, we see that, that when Jesus returned to Capernaum, the people were there waiting for him, the ones that he'd already been ministering to. And in this account, what we see is that, that there were two people involved, this woman and this man. And both of these people were in need of Jesus, right? And, and I, I want to highlight this a little bit because often in our lives, we, we think, we can think that um, we have faith going, God can heal you. God wants to heal you. But we don't have the faith that moves us to the place where we believe that God 
wants to heal me. That God can heal me. God can do a work in your life, but I'm not so sure He would do it for me. And in this account, we see that that's nonsense because there's this contrast between two people and, 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 and it shows the diversity of the people who come to Jesus for help and that He receives all. In other words, the, the whosoever's that will come to Him by faith. Whether it's, 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 it's for salvation or for a life surrendered to Him. And in verse 41, we're told the man's name was Jairus, but the woman's name is not even told to us. Jairus was the ruler of this local synagogue. And what that means is he would have been a wealthy guy, he'd have been a man of influence, and he'd been well-respected in the community. However, this unnamed woman, she was poor, and she was probably even destitute, considering verse 43 tells us that she had spent all of her livelihood trying to get well, and that her doctors, that she had hired many physicians, and to no avail, she was still sick. And as a result of the nature of infirmity, she would have been considered an outcast of that Jewish culture and society at that time. In addition to this, we see that Jairus, he's interceding again for his child. What a noble thing, right? His own little girl, a child, an innocent person. And yet the woman, she comes to Jesus hoping to get something for herself. I love it that the Bible says, man, you have not because you ask not. We're called to make our requests known to God. And Jairus, he had been blessed with 12 years of joy with his daughter, and the woman had experienced 12 years of misery as a result of her affliction. Yet in spite of all these differences, what do they have in common? They both go to Jesus. And, and he receives them both. The only one who can help him. And this woman, she had a hidden need, but, but it affected her physically. And it would, have even, it would have made every aspect of this woman's life difficult. It would have affected her spiritually because the type of sickness she had, according to Leviticus chapter 15, it, it made her spiritually or ceremonially unclean. And she, as well, she wouldn't even be allowed to go to the temple to participate in any of the aspects of the religious life of the nation. None of the feasts, none of it. So we see that, as, as I, I bring that out, point out, this lady was suffering in many ways. She was destitute, she was discouraged, she was desperate. Nevertheless, she, by faith, came to Jesus, and her need was met as she reached out in verse 44, look there, to touch the border of the garment. In light of this whole account, it's easy to see And this is so cool to faith being tested because it's easy to see that the things that were testing her faith, which could have been excuses for her to not reach out in faith and touch Jesus. And I point that out because when our faith is being tested, they can be the very excuses by which we go, no, I'm not going to walk by faith. I'm not going to live by faith. I'm not going to exercise faith. I'm not going to stand in faith. To begin with, according, according to Verse 45, when we look at the crowd, this crowd was um, testing her faith in this sense. It was large. There were people pressing around. She had to work to get to Jesus. There was, uh, it wouldn't have been an easy thing to do. It was large. Also in verse 43, we're told that nothing that she had previously done in any attempt that she had made to be healed took place. So maybe you've been in that situation. I've done everything. I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to give up. Why try again? Why even pray again? Why even ask again? Why even put myself out there in the hope that might come along with it that something might be different if I try again? And yet, after 12 years of being 
affirmed and, and um, having this affirmity, she still, she reaches out. Furthermore, Jesus was busy, right? Okay, he was on his way with Jairus, the important ruler of the synagogue, to heal a little girl who was dying. But this woman allowed for nothing to stand in her way. No excuses. And she chose to walk in faith. And as Jesus had declared in verse 48, it was her faith that made her well. And ultimately, it's what brought her peace. Faith brought peace. Now, the fact that Jesus stopped to address this woman, I'm just about ready to wrap it up. The fact that he stopped to address this woman when she had been healed, it's important for it did many things. There was, she was been healed He could have just let her go on her way and she'd have been healed all the same, but he did not. He stopped. And there's some reasons why. And it it brings us also back to this aspect of faith being tested. And what does it reveal to us? The first reason for why Jesus stopped to address this woman, know this, it was an opportunity for her to tell what had happened so that God could be glorified. God is glorified through our lives when we exercise our faith in those times of testing. Secondly, by stopping by stopping Jesus, or when Jesus ultimately stopped to address this woman, he was quote-unquote delayed, right? I mean, they were on their way. It was a life-and-death situation, and yet this woman who touched him, he stops. And it delayed his arrival to Jairus' house. And so this apparent delay, this was a testing of Jairus' faith. Think about Jairus in this situation. Come on, Jesus! My daughter's dying! But it was also an encouragement and a strengthening of Jairus' faith to hear and to see the miraculous power that Jesus had to heal. Oh my gosh, this woman had been sick for 12 years and my daughter's sick and he healed her. Certainly, he can heal my daughter. He'd already gone to Jesus in faith, but now he had seen it played out. And, and I think this is important, especially in light of the fact that there were people already on the way to Jairus, right, to say, don't even bother. It's too late. Your daughter has already died. And so in verse 49, we see that that interaction. And Jesus says in verse 50, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. I'm here to tell you, after 17 years of being a pastor full-time, and alongside my years of chaplaincy with hospice, I'm here to tell you, I have no doubts, that not, not, to, not to kind of put it on levels of, of, of testing, but I believe that the ultimate test of faith and challenge to walk by faith is in the face of death. Is in the face of death. And it's the same whether we are the ones facing death or grieving the death of someone whom we love or, or, or facing their death or our death in that same sense. And in, 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 in the hope we have, the faith we have is this, right? That if we die or that someone who we love dies, who have put their faith in Jesus, that they and we too will be resurrected back to life. That when this body is put in the ground, that then the soul is separated, that it will go to be with God and it will be with Him forevermore. That's our faith. And there's an exercising of that faith that we'll be called to as we face death, as, as we watch other people face death. And when Jairus had left his home, It had to be with desperation. Think about it. It had to be with a sense of urgency because his daughter was sick. She was going to die. However, by the time Jesus got away from the crowd, right, to go with him after this delay, Jairus' daughter had died. And apparently Jairus' friends who had came to bring him the news that his daughter had already died, they somehow believed that Jesus could only help people who were alive. And so they, in verse 49, they advised Jairus, 
Don't trouble the master any longer. Leave Jesus alone. Drop the matter and come home and grieve the death of your daughter. But I love it that Jesus encouraged Jairus and proved to him and encouraged him with hope beyond death. His heart would have been broken by this awful news of his daughter's death. And with the awesome word of hope, saying in verse 5, 50, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And I imagine Jerry, as he hung on to these words, don't you think, as he walked with Jesus to the remainder of, to the, remainder of the way to the house, I'm sure the journey had to have been the longest walk that Jarius had ever had in his life. And when he reached the home, the scene that was there had to have been discouraging as people were weeping and mourning. But Jesus was not deterred. He walked right in. He took command of the situation. He told the people in verse 52 to stop weeping, saying the girl was not dead and she was asleep. And those who had gathered together to mourn over the The death of the girl, they begin to ridicule Jesus in verse 53, saying that she was sleeping. So Jesus made him leave. And there's there's some, you know, some reasons why people believe that took place, but I love it that Jesus simply took her by the hand and said, Arise. Simple. And the girl who was once dead was brought back to life. Now, in closing, the worship team can come up. I want to point out that even though Jesus would not allow the people to come in to the room, when he did this miracle, what we read from the other gospel accounts is that there were three men in the room beside him, Peter, James, and John. And when we study out the gospel accounts, we see that Peter, James, and John had accompanied Jesus in total on three special occasions where they were the only ones allowed on scene to know what was going on. This one was the first, with the healing of Jairus' daughter. The second would be on the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that Moses and Elijah would appear to them as Jesus was transformed and the glory of God was revealed through him, which is in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And then the third time where these three men had this special and exclusive inside scene to the things that were going on was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was the night when Jesus prayed before being arrested, which is recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 33. And listen, as we close, I point these things out. I point, I, uh, the thing to point out is that all three of these events have something to do with death. Okay? All three of those events have something to do with death. And it's clear that these three disciples, they learn some valuable lessons about Jesus and death from these experiences. In the house of Jairus, they learn that Jesus is victorious over death. Amen. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, discovered that Jesus would be glorified in his death. There was a foretelling of what Jesus would look like, and he would be glorified through his death as, as the veil was torn back. And in the garden, they saw this, that ultimately Jesus was surrendered to death. And all three of these men needed these lessons. And as as we are tested in our faith and as we are challenged to live by faith today in in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we can see how we also need to learn from these same lessons. Because by these similar tests of faith, Jesus' disciples are assured, or by these similar tests of faith, we, like Jesus' disciples, we're assured of this. We're assured that our faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, we're assured that through the testing of faith, that faith will take root in our hearts. 
and it'll grow and it'll bring forth and it'll bear fruit as we experience God's love and faithfulness in these times of testing. Lord, I pray as we are tested in faith, Lord, as the end draws near, as we look forward for Your Son's return, Lord, as we live by faith and walk by faith, that You would show Yourself to be faithful to us. God, that You would grow our faith. Lord, and that ultimately, as we live differently than the rest of this world, that You would be known. Lord, that we would be strengthened. That we would have joy and peace in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You stand?